Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Today, um, I'm excited to introduce to you uh, a best-selling author, philanthropist, uh, internationally acclaimed speaker, and a senior-level executive who's written a book. Um, it's a new book uh, that I think would be um, good reading for anyone who, uh, particularly in leadership roles, but just it, it's a it's a good read, and I'm I'm happy um, to talk about it today with uh, the author Steve Pemberton. Uh, welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm on the Perkins platform, eh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, um, you know, Steve, I, I'm really impressed. A lot of the work that you've been doing as a divert, chief diversity officer, um, I love that uh, work human uh, concept, the, uh, that you're the chief people officer at work uh, human. Um, so first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, you know, before we even get into uh, the work that you've been doing around your, your writing, and I know you're doing a lot of great work in terms of um, uh, resources and, and talent acquisition. So let's start with, tell me about yourself and and how you got where you are now. Uh, yes. Well, Brian, that's a subject of, uh, of a book, actually, but um, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version uh, of it. I grew up in uh, Massachusetts in a community called New Bedford, and though you may not have heard the name, you have heard of it if you've read Absolutely. Moby Dick. Uh, Absolutely. That was where it was centered. Um, I've actually uh, been to New Bedford, believe it or not. One of my dear colleagues in my first uh, university post, he was also from New Bedford. His uh, uh, parents were from uh, Cape Verde. And sure. um, I know that it is a, uh, a whaling town. Um, or was, I don't know about now, but uh, certainly I, I know New Bedford. Yeah, it, the nickname of the city uh, was the city that lights the world because it mm-hmm. was the whaling capital of the world before kerosene came along and, and um, put an end to the whaling industry, which is, you know, uh, uh, for the naturalists uh, of us in the world, it's probably the, the, a good thing because uh, we probably would have hunted whales in, in, into extinction. Had it not been, um, but it has some other footprints in history. Uh, the forerunner to the NAACP, the Niagara Movement, was founded there. In fact, mm-hmm. Dr. E. Mm-hmm. Du Bois used to visit that area mm-hmm. uh, because he had family uh, there. Um, Frederick Douglass lived there. It was a fact, in fact, it was the first place that he lived when he escaped from the South. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Wow, didn't You've seen know the that. movie Glory, uh, members of the 54th and 55th Regiment came, including the flag bearer, William Carney, came from New Bedford. Uh, so okay. New Bedford has this amazing history that you would think would have come from a big city. Uh, but it's not. It's a, it's a really a diverse, uh, uh, you know, blue-collar, working-class town, and that's, that's where my story began. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, um, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So I uh, grew up in foster care in uh, New Bedford. My birth name was Steve Plakowitz, and I carried that name all the way through college. Uh, I was taken from my mother uh, when I was three. I never saw her again. Uh, my father was unknown to me, uh, uh, was murdered when I was five, although I was in the foster care system already by then. And um, I'd like to tell you that I was taken in by kind and caring foster families, but that's, that's not what happened. I fell through the gaps, in essence, in large part because uh, society just didn't know what to do with me, a biracial boy uh, with a blonde afro and uh, a Polish last name. And so, uh, you know, there's just no place for you. So sure. I was taken in, you know, for money. I knew it. I felt it. And it was a, it was a battle uh, throughout all of my childhood. Uh, I finally met. I was in this one foster home for 11 years. And I finally managed uh, to escape <laughs> that place. And I do deliberately call it an escape because that's exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually went to my social worker's office in downtown New Bedford. It was a dead of winter, and I had just a T-shirt on. And uh, I sat in his office for the rest of that day uh, watching him call families, trying to get somebody to take me in. But I don't know at the time is that I'm the most difficult kind of child to place. I'm black. I'm male. I'm 16 years old. You know, I'm, I'm going to be difficult to place at any time of the year let alone uh, three days after Christmas. Uh, But Mm -hmm. miraculously, a high school teacher uh, who I knew because he was a counselor in the college access program that I was a part of uh, opened his home uh, to me. I was supposed to stay with him, Brian, for the week between uh, Christmas and New Year's. That was the plan anyway, while they tried to find me more permanent placement, but they never did. And so when they approached um, John Sykes and asked him if I could stay with him for my last year of high school, he agreed. And so mm-hmm. he was the one who helped get me off to college. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think, um, um, so you you originally you 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 mentioned that um, so that you were you were in you were in New Bedford this whole time. You, you weren't. You weren't, you, even though you said place to place, it was all within the community of New Bedford. All the community of New Bedford. I mean, okay. the thing that I realized in retrospect, I was very, uh, I was fortunate, uh, was that I was able to stay in the same school system. Mm-hmm. So I was at New Bedford High School, and when I went to live with John, I was able to stay uh, in my high school, which was really, really important uh, to me. And because I was also in the Upward Bound program, which is a college access program, mm-hmm. it's literally how I found my way to Boston College on a full scholarship. Mm-hmm. My college years were a challenge, you know, in part because while I had this raw intellect that came from a love of reading, I just didn't understand any of the mechanics of navigating college. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to manage my time. I didn't know how to take notes. I didn't know a lot of things. But I did. I, I learned, you know, fair, fairly quickly. And, and going to school in Boston, the college capital of the world, met people from all over the world, many of whom are still my friends to, to this day. Uh, but I have this moment of pivot and awakening on the day that I graduate. And I vividly remember waking up that day, getting uh, my cap and gown on, and, um, you know, I'm graduating today. And I was thrilled because it was such a long, hard road to get there. And as I'm walking across campus, I'm getting stopped by families who are asking me to take pictures of my classmate and their family. Mm. And I realized the reason that they were stopping me is because I was alone. And so when I graduated, walked across that stage, there was nobody there. I was by myself. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, I had to have come from somewhere. You know, where is that place? Mm -hmm. Uh, Who are those people? Because I had no memory of my mother, no other ones. So... My appearance was always, you know, a source of questions because I just didn't fit. You know, my last name didn't fit me, and my features didn't fit. I mean, it just felt like I was um, a walking question mark. On that day, that I'm going to find where I have come from. I'm going to find my mother and father, introduce myself to them, have a lot of questions for them about where where had they been, and why hadn't they come for me. And so that was a journey that I set off on. Uh, this was long before the days of the Internet and uh, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Yeah. I called it a prayer. And uh, um, with the rest of my last was 20 years prior, and the person who answered that phone was my grandmother, who had not known what had happened to me. And uh, she was my first connection to, you know, my biological family. You know, the, the, the first question that I asked her to give you a sense for how uh, unaware I had been of my own family history, when I told her my name, I'm Steve Plakowitz, she dropped the phone. So I knew that the person on the other end of that phone call must know who I was. Yeah. And my first question that I asked her was, where's my mother? And she was the one who told me that my mother had passed away uh, in uh, 1978. And uh, I then asked her, well, do you know who my, where my father is? And she says, I don't know anything about your father other than that your mother said he was a well-known fighter. Uh, so that was the only information I had to go on. Yeah, so I became wow. I became something of a detective. <laughs> I, you know, I would also, um, you know, share when um, you grow up in a situation like that, it's not it's it's, it's not normal. It feels normal to you, and so you're off. Uh, particularly in this one foster home, very violent place uh, where 
they just lived in this world of guile and deceit and manipulation. And so you're up, you're in this, in this dual battle. You know, on the one hand, you're trying to figure out where you've come from, solving the mystery of your identity. And then the other is you're battling to eat, you're battling to fend these people off of you, you're battling to be seen for more than the circumstance that you're in. Uh, and that battle, though, gave me a certain resilience and a degree of grit uh, that I probably still have, you know, it's it just with me. Uh, but it also gave me a vision uh, of a different life than the one that I had inherited because the truth mm-hmm. of it is that I was born into that. I didn't ask for it. I didn't create it. I definitely mm-hmm. didn't sign my name to it. Yeah. And so the question for me now was going to be, you know, could I build from it? And I would would learn that navigating that very challenging and very difficult situation did give me a skill set. And it's a skill set that uh, I still have. I, and I think most people go through adverse circumstances do have that skill set. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, you know, you know, hearing you hearing you talk about the the circumstances, um, it certainly doesn't sound like you're saying, you know, just pull yourself up. Uh, that what I hear, um, you know, loud and clear though, is that you're saying that you had you you recognized that there were that you were in a situation and that you came from somewhere, kind of the self-recognition, but that um, also, though, that you had um, some other choices about how you view those circumstances. I know that um, one of the things that has been said about you is that you have a refusal to accept things as they are mm-hmm. and and that that you know you you have you have uh, a mindset that you know there are things that are in your control and there are things that are not in your control and so but that that you take control of that which you can and and make changes to your environment to your 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 mindset and so what what is the do you think that that is that something that is nature is that is that for you was that just that was just deep in you or was there something was there an event was there an intervention that happened something uh that you can say i remember when x happened um was it the day in the courtyard um where you were taking pictures what is it that made you say I, there's something else for me other than to stay in this circumstance and i'm talking about before college um to mm, stay oh, yeah. in in this yeah. circumstance what was that i think anyone in a adverse circumstance what they need more than anything else is a vision of of a different life than the circumstance that they're in and for me that came through reading. I love to read. I still love to read. Uh, while most people are binge watching, I'm reading still. And it, it, as a child, reading fairy tales, you know, and you, and you saw dreams do actually come true. You saw intact families. 
you saw kindness and caring and love and overcoming. I saw all of that in the books I read, whether it was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Watership Down, any of the mysteries that I gravitated to. It literally formed a worldview for me that was the exact opposite of what I was experiencing. And anyone in an adverse circumstance has to try to find where the possibilities are. Uh, and for me, those possibilities became, you know, clear to me because of what I read. So now the question was, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. I, I understood in some way that doing well academically was going to help me, although I didn't understand exactly how that would look, how that would unfold, because, you know, a fifth, sixth grader probably doesn't understand that. I wasn't in an environment where anybody talked about college, but I, I did take a lot of joy in being successful in the classroom. And so, you know, that, that, that sense of having um, that kind of connectivity uh, to uh, a greater mission was profoundly important to me. Uh, and the, that's a, a, a long debate, right? It's, it's where, where, does, where does responsibility lie? In psychology, it's nature versus nurture. Which one is it? Which one dominates? Are you born with a certain nature that allows you to overcome adversity, or is that something that's nurtured? In sociology, a similar debate's been going on forever, and it's agency versus structure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are we defined by the structures in which we grow up, or are we, as individual agents, the one really dictating and driving uh, forward uh, our, not just our own uh, life mission, but perhaps impacting others. And I've always been fascinated by the either or, because I don't think life quite unfolds that way. I think it's a both and. Mm-hmm. and. And I saw this most clearly when I came to learn the story of my father, uh, who was, my grandmother was right. He was one of the top fighters in the world. Mm. Top amateur fighters specifically, and having never met him and having no memory of him, I would have to rely on the accounts of his family and of his friends. And as they were describing his personality to me, I was thinking to myself, "Boy, I'm I'm a lot like that. I'm a lot like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That fighting." determination, you're not going to break me down, you're not going to win. He had that nature too. Mm -hmm. The difference between us, though, was that that was never nurtured. If anything, it was taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And it broke his heart that his boxing career did not turn out the way he wanted it to. It broke his heart that his family was separated when his mother died when he was 14 and he wound up in a juvenile home. You know, mm-hmm. he, his, he had an equally hard path, but where I could point to an upper bound program uh, that paved the way for me to get to college or John Sykes, the teacher who took me in, I don't see those kinds of influences in his life. And so... You know, by the time I was 26, I, I was a college graduate and in graduate school and well into my professional life. And um, uh, he was living a very, very different life. 
uh, we want to make choices, right, and, and, and better choices. Um, I just held them to a slightly higher standard because I thought, as I often think, you, you have to keep fighting, you have to keep battling, and you have to find a way. Uh, but I think he was so heartbroken that he just gave up. And I resolved, I was, I'd already resolved long before I, I learned his story, but that was not going to be my story. Sure, sure. You know, uh, Steve, listening to you talk, there are a few things that right away uh, I think about that we have in common. One, you talked about your your passion for reading at an early age. I, too, uh, read a lot when I was young, um, spent a lot of time. You were reading you know, novels or what have you. I was reading World Book Encyclopedia. So um, oh, yeah. I, I uh, we had a set of World Book Encyclopedia uh, that, you know, from beginning to end I read and, and in fact, I did twice. But, um, but mm-hmm. that was one thing, World Book Encyclopedia, my reading. But the other thing that I just smiled when you said it was I also was in Upward Bound. Um, was oh. a program. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people I run into, um, particularly for, d- depends on what areas you're from, but a lot of disadvantaged areas. I, I'm from a place in rural Alabama, and there was a small community college, and, you know, somebody at my church brought these applications and said to our parents, hey, you get your kids in this. And my parents, you know, went ahead and, and did that. Uh, but Upward Bound was certainly um, something that I, I paid attention to and, and got exposed not to the idea of that I could go because I had older sisters that had gone to college. But um, what it did for me was it put it right in my kind of in my control. Like this is something that actually you can do uh, as well. Mm. But but I I also think about what you're what you said, um, and it must have been similar. I mean, for me, um, growing up in this particular town, that a lot of times my peers had, um, if I could say, you know, like a lot of a, a lot of negative things to say about the fact that I was an avid reader. Or that I, you know, I, I seem to be doing things. I, I still remember, and I tell this story a lot, that I had one, one um, peer uh, when we were in high school um, told me that I was acting white because I was taking classes oh, yeah. in trigger, you know, trigonometry. And uh, so I'm sure you've heard that, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I also think about when I, you know, kind of transition into your book explicitly is that the way you talk about it is that ordinary people can have a huge impact on the world. And I, I mean, I believe that. And I've, you know, I've heard a lot where sometimes people say, always be kind, say a kind word. You don't know what impact that's going to have on someone in that moment. And as a professor, I've had that a lot where I've said something and a student will come back 10 years later and say, you probably don't remember saying this to me, but here's what you, here's the advice you gave. And as a result, 
here's what I've done. And it's like something huge. And like, because I said that, you know, so it's, it's, I, you know, I've, I've seen it, I've lived it. I've also, you know, experienced it. And, um, and so I'd love to hear you tell me a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've seen and what made you talk about this, describe for me, like sort of this lighthouse effect and what you say it is in the world and how um, ordinary people can do that. Well, it, it, it actually came from my first book. So I shared my coming-of-age journey in my first book, A Chance in the World. And when that book arrived in the mail, uh, I was, of course, happy, uh, and for a couple of reasons. One, that I, I had accomplished something that is hard to do or can be hard to do. And the other, Brian, is I, was, I wanted my life back because I took yeah. a year off. And so I, I you know, I, I didn't play golf. And, you know, I was up at 4.30 um, every morning and writing at 11 at night. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that was just a grind of writing. So, so you're telling you know, me that's what – so are you telling me that's what it's going to take for me to finish this book that I'm in the middle of? I'm going to have to that, do that, this. That thing. is what it's going to take. <laughs> um uh, but I but I will tell you that one of my motivating thoughts was, don't let a story die with you, uh, yeah. and that I, I, I uh, and I'm so glad that um, I I finished it, uh, had the discipline to do it, uh, but I thought this is great and now I can kind of move on. Well, uh, I was in for quite a surprise uh, because what I would come to realize is that in, in writing my story, I had unknowingly written chapters of other people's lives too. Mm. These common threads of humanity that we all share. One of the things that we are getting wrong in our society today is that we think we know someone's story because of what they look like, or a label that we might assign to them, whether it be their faith, whether it be their politics, whether it be their race, their gender, their zip code. We, we seem to think that we, we know somebody's story. And then we have a machinery, uh, both in the world of politics and in the world of media, that takes advantage of that and exploits it and suggests to us that the most important thing that we can know about each other is that which is different, and that difference is something that we need to be afraid of. It's a business model. It's a political model, Yeah. and it's costing us a lot in terms of our national character. We, we see that happen every single day. Oh, every day. Um, and, and so what is the response to that? What sits on the other scale, then, if we are subjected to that kind of discord and dissonance. What do you put on the other scale that at minimum balances, if not exceeds it? What is that new way of thinking? Well, I, I learned that the answer to that question lies in understanding each other's journeys and stories. Mm -hmm. And that I learned as a result of the response to my first book. I remember the first person who wrote to me that same week it was published was a man from Ireland who said, 
uh, that he too had been orphaned and that he too had lost a lot, but he had never been able to come to terms with it until he read my book. And because he had, he said, uh, I can now go to my final rest in peace. Mm. And you get a message like that, Ryan, it just stops you. Yeah. And I get those messages every week. Someone, Mm. somewhere, some part of the world has read that book, uh, seen the movie, the film adaptation of it, and shares a chapter of their life with me. So you get to see these ordinary people who are really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. In, in The Lighthouse Effect, I wrote about these nine people uh, whose lives and stories I encountered along my own life journey. Mm-hmm. Some as a young boy, uh, some as a younger man, and as recently as a few years ago. And in each case, they shared something with me that made me pause and reflect. It affirmed maybe a life lesson that I always held mm-hmm. or reminded me of, of that life lesson. And so I have written their, their stories, and there's ten of them all together, but nine mm-hmm. attributes I assigned to them. Uh, so I wrote about and I dedicated the book to John Sykes, who took me in. But I, I wanted to dive into his story. Because, Brian, why did he do that? Why did this man, who was a bachelor, uh, who was in his 40s, um, take in this 16-year-old who he barely knew? You know, what, what was it in his life journey uh, that would compel him uh, to do that? So the, in all of them, follow along those paths. They come from different walks of life. They are of different faiths and genders. Uh, They have different political views. But this common thread they have is what I came to call the lighthouse effect. So why the lighthouse? So, Brian, the lighthouse is a truly fascinating architectural structure. Uh, I did my undergraduate work in political science and in my graduate work in sociology, so I'm not an architect, however. If you read as much as you and I do, you learn a lot about a lot of things that aren't necessarily in your wheelhouse, right? So I've become this quasi-phorologist, and a phorologist (laughs) uh, is somebody who studies lighthouses. Mm -hmm. And you're called a phorologist because the first known lighthouse was constructed on the Greek island of Pharos uh, back in ancient times. The lighthouse is truly a marvel. Uh, it exists where there is danger. Wherever you see a lighthouse, there's one thing you know for sure. There is difficulty nearby. It warns you of that danger, actually. Uh, that could be an abandoned shipwreck. It could be an old, it could be a reef. Um, it could be a particular time of year when, when, when storms are, are more pronounced or, or currents uh, uh, are more dangerous. So it, 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 it's there to really guide you but it doesn't tell you to sail towards it. It, it guides you away from where, where, where the danger is, which is why it's very hard to sail right up to a lighthouse because it's usually in a very, very difficult uh, place. Uh, the lighthouse does not judge you. It does not ask you uh, how you came to be in the storm. It doesn't blame you for not knowing your way. Uh, it doesn't care about your race, uh, your gender, 
uh, or how you feel on a particular social issue because the lighthouse really is only concerned with your humanity. Mm-hmm. There are nearly 23,000 of them across the world. No matter where you see uh, that uh, lighthouse, um, uh, it always has the same mission, and that mission is to protect the journey of the traveler. Uh, and so how does it do, it, do that? Well, um, it does that by oftentimes correcting our path and, and suggesting a different way that we should be sailing and moving. As a technical matter, we don't need lighthouses anymore because we have technology. We have global positioning systems. We have electronic navigational charts for, for, for those who sail. So you don't need the lighthouse, but they still endure. Why are they still with us? And I think the reason they are is reflected in the stories that people would share with me, hmm. that the best elements of the lighthouse are also the best elements of humanity because the lighthouse does not judge. It has this uncompromising belief in your humanity. It turns your doubts into destinations. It sees not, it is aware of the circumstances, but is focused on the possibilities. It knows that the first picture of you is not the full story. Uh, It helps and heals. There's a strength and an honor and a selflessness. Uh, and it's willing to stand to guide your journey, even though it's in the middle of the same storm that you are. Mm-hmm. If you ever sail up close to a lighthouse, you can see it's battle scarred. From a distance, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but up, up close, it's battle scarred. Yes. And the humans in our life who have taught us the most, who we remember the most, are a lot like the lighthouse. And I'm not referring to people in our family because, you know, our parents and grandparents, extended family and spouses and children, they're, you know, they're de facto lighthouses. I'm not referring to them. I'm referring to the elementary school teacher, uh, the uh, high school coach, uh, college professor, a first boss, a kind neighbor. I mean, someone who you look back down the journey that has been your own life and you realize if it wasn't for that ordinary person, you might be in a very, very different place than you are right now. Mm-hmm. And so it is this call to action. It's a way of living and learning and leading, especially when you see so much dissonance in the world. And we all have that power to be a lighthouse to someone else. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need to be well-known or a celebrity. Uh, you don't need degrees and certification because a lot of times our life and the journey of our life is an example to someone else uh, who needs to see in our story and our victory the possibility of, of their own. So mm-hmm. these, these ten people, lastly, they all went through something very difficult, and it should have broken them, Brian. It should have, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. In fact, it elevated them to a greater humanity. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you uh, for sharing that. And I, um, again, the title of the book, for those of you who may have just joined us, is The Lighthouse Effect. Um, And its author, who has been with us uh, throughout today's broadcast, is Steve Pemberton. 
And uh, Steve, I, you know, this has been so enriching for me. We're already over time and it's, it's fine with me. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I know that there are ways you, you have um, speaking engagements and, and, and shows that you're on. Please share uh, with people that might be listening in um, how they might they might contact you or, you know, any of the social media handles you might have, um, because I'm sure people are, are going to want to read more and hear more about what you have to say. Well, fine. Thanks again for, for, for having me and for the opportunity to talk about um, both my, my story and the story of, of others. So you can find me on all the social media platforms, uh, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, generally at I.C. Pemberton. There's one other C. Pemberton who comes up. He's an English actor, and I, uh, he and I uh, don't look alike, so you can <laughs> figure out the, the difference between sure. the two of us. The other place yeah. you can go is to my website, stevepemberton.io. Uh, okay, excellent. And, and, uh, and, of course, everyone knows that I, I am a, a big a proponent of uh, LinkedIn. Steve is also on LinkedIn. You can see some of the things that uh, he's doing there as well. So um, absolutely. Um, Steve, you've enriched me so much today. Thank you so much for your, your candor, your, your openness to share with me in just the short amount of time, um, your, your story, parts of your life story, um, congratulations on your awards. I know you've been recognized countless times, and even by Congress and others. Um, you know, you don't need to hear it from me, but I, I'm going to say it anyway. Keep up the work that you're doing, and um, this this is what we need: more people telling the story. Um, you know, it, it's funny the the phrase, and I think that's probably what what caught me is because, you know, part of what I, what I've used to describe people that I have, I've had in my family, I've said to people over and over again that they were just ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, you, you have done a great job of, of putting that together and making connections for people who are leaders, aspiring leaders and, and, and the rest of us. Um, And so thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Um, Certainly you'll be hearing from me next time I'm up your way um, in in the Boston area um, or anywhere I might see that you might be speaking. You're going to, you'll hear me. I'm going to tell you, let's, let's meet at the Starbucks or somewhere. So uh, you, you won't get rid of me uh, too easily. So I just want you to know, I've learned a lot from you and I know that uh, people who've listened in, um, have done the same. So I'm just wishing you a great deal of success in the future. Um, and until we meet, go well, stay well. I appreciate you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.